Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. My guest today is Agnes Olselberger. Agnes is a therapist, trainer, and coach working with changemakers who feel overwhelmed, burned out, or stuck to support them in finding their resilience and creative power. Coming from a background in the not-for-profit sector and international development, with a focus on climate change, gender, and social inequality, she started the Good Jungle to connect the worlds of beyond-profit organizations and activism with the emerging meeting place between psychology, neuroscience, and contemplative practice. As a therapist, Agnes works in private practice and organizational settings. She also works with groups and individuals on their relationship to money using Peter Koenig's powerfully transformative money work, which draws on Jungian ideas on shadow and the unconscious. Born and raised in Vienna, Austria, Agnes now lives in Brighton in the United Kingdom with her family. With roots all over Europe and experience living and working in various parts of the world, Agnes is very interested in intercultural and migratory life experiences and the questions of identity and belonging they bring. Additionally, I'll be donating to and raising awareness for the charity or organization of my guest choice with each and every episode. This episode, the organization is called the All Sorts Youth Project. Please join me in donating. It is a local organization near Agnes in Brighton in the United Kingdom. And any and all donations really make a difference. And in this conversation, we mostly focus on social justice and social change and actually how our relationship with money and money work can really transform the way that we see ourselves and therefore the way that we're able to make effective change in the world. We really spend the bulk of this conversation talking about money work, and it's a very long conversation, so I won't belabor the point too much, and we'll go really in-depth during the conversation. But essentially, what money work posits is that we project all of our beliefs about ourselves, and largely they are unconscious beliefs. They're things that we don't want to see in ourselves onto money. So to give a specific example, a judgment that I have sometimes of someone who has lots of money, like Elon Musk, for example, a billionaire, is that he is a greedy, selfish, capitalist pig. And what money work would posit is that those are shadows that I have not taken a look at in myself and that I have inner work to do to look at the part of me that is greedy and a capitalist pig and who's really selfish. Because Invariably, we're all humans. We're we're not only the things that we want to be. We're not only altruistic and selfless. We have parts of ourselves that we probably don't like about ourselves. And if we aren't willing to look at them, they're going to leak out in insidious ways anyway. So to take a look at them, it's a bold and courageous act, but it also gives us the power to more consciously be all of ourselves and be more effective in the way that we want to be altruistic and be selfless. 
So if that all sounds confusing, I know it, it probably did for me when I first got into money work, but Agnes does a really good job of dissecting what all of this means and why it's really useful, especially if you are a change maker or an aspiring change maker in the world. So with all of that said, let's settle in, take a nice deep breath. And enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Agnes Holtzelberger. Hi, Agnes. Welcome to Mike's Search for Meaning. Hello, Michael. Thanks for inviting me. It's really a privilege to have you on. I'm really excited to get into my eclectic tastes and, and my <laughs> my appetite for many different things. And, and your background is going to wet my beak for all of those things. And before we go there, I start every interview in a similar fashion. I, I know the importance of childhood and how our formative years really shape who we are. And I'm curious about what you were like as a child. And the first question I typically ask is, what, what was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up? Ooh, wow. So what was it like at my dinner table? So there were three of us around the dinner table usually it was me and my dad and my mom I'm an only child I grew up in Vienna my mom is from Switzerland and yeah sort of growing up younger my parents would have been both very very busy people because they were students when I was born and then yeah they were just kind of building a life really when I was younger so there was usually there would have been a full day of work to be had before we all sort of found our way to the dinner table together and there would be Sometimes an au pair who lived with us for a while, one of them was from the US and a couple of them were from Sweden. Sometimes they were around too, who'd been looking after me. And yeah, my dad was probably usually quite full up from a day behind a screen and on the telephone. And well, hang on, that was probably pre-internet. I don't know what he was doing in the office, probably sending faxes and, um, and having meetings and taking clients for lunch and smoking lots of cigarettes. But yeah, he he was, I think he kind of, in the evening, he was often quite like full up is the word, just kind of saturated with demands and was not very talkative, I think. And and my mom was kind of the glue, I think, in the family. So she she smoothed things. She made would, made a, would make us dinner. And there was often like some kind of negotiation going on around something or other that would have happened to me in the day. And, and she was doing a lot of the communicating, I think, between us. So, yeah. And then I grew up in a very, I mean, I grew up in a small nuclear nuclear family, but in the house, in the building I lived in, there was also another generation, my grandparents. And there was actually at the time a connection between the two apartments that we lived in. So there was an open door that people could walk through any time. And so there were lots of dinners as well around my grandparents' dinner table. And um, there was often a lot of focus on eat your food, make sure you eat your food because there, there was a war and we didn't have enough to eat. So you eat. Mm-hmm. And that, that last bit there is, is maybe something that we could get back to around money work in a way, right? The, there's a conditioning around, you know, this is, there's a scarcity maybe is the word that, that comes to mind. Yeah. There is a sense of scarcity and of like, we we've got it good right now. We need to make the best of it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I know that one of the initial directions, at least of your career, was you wanted to do good in the world. You you yeah. really that mattered to you. Was that was that true of you 
since any basically any time that you can remember like even as a little girl was that what you aspired to I think so there's a story where I was probably two or three and my mom says I was sitting on a terrace and there was a little colony of ants in front of me or like a little motorway of ants transporting stuff and apparently I got my thumb out and went you're dead you're dead you're dead so <laughs> my altruism was probably well I guess maybe still age appropriate at that time sort of quite absent but when I think about yeah, myself in school, like primary, but mostly maybe sort of early secondary school, I definitely had an activist streak. Like I wanted to make stuff happen. And most of that initially was directed at animal protection and yeah, sort of, you know, against an abuse of animals. I'd collect money for, I don't know, I remember, I remember doing fundraising for bears and founding a, this was all pre-internet, like founding a it, I don't know how to translate that to English. It, was, it would translate into a letter club, like a kind of club where people get something like a newsletter. And and I kind of tried to start a letter club about conservation and animals. And and I also wanted to start a campaign to get kids into parliament because I thought it was outrageous that children weren't involved in decision-making in the public. So I was probably aged 11, 10. And oh yeah, when I was younger, I think when I was younger than that, my version of doing good in the world was becoming a cop which changed very quickly but that was the first way I could think of of you know supporting fairness in the world was to be a police officer but mm -hmm. that got in favor of of more yeah political and other ideas mm. yeah and did you go to university what what did you decide to study and and where did you initially what direction what path did you take in your career and in your mission to kind of reconcile how can I be best of service to all, all these different challenges that the world and society faces? So I think all of those things were in my mind when I was like 15, 8, 15, 16, 17. And like you, I played music. I, I played the cello and the piano when I was a, a young kid and a teen. And I, I remember being on this kind of threshold or in, on this fork in the road where it was like, okay, either you're going to double down on the music and you're going to get really serious about this if you want to become a professional or you're not. And then that's a decision. And that decision felt very kind of, felt very urgent at the time. I think I was 14. And I remember being in a real dilemma because I loved I loved music. I loved playing, especially loved playing in an orchestra and it just really filled up my cup. But I was curious about so many other things. I just, I just knew that if I went for the music, there wouldn't be room much for much else in my life. So the other thing I was really interested in was, yeah, politics and social justice really. And initially I thought I'd be, I loved writing and I kept being told I was good at writing. So I, I wanted to become a journalist. And then I got interested in, somebody told me about this kind of this field of international cooperation and development. And I started looking into that. And I was also really into languages and travel. So I got really curious about the idea of helping elsewhere. And when I started uni, there, there was a brand new degree at Vienna University where I studied, which was international development. And I that's what I sort of first went into international development and politics with the idea of becoming something like an aid worker or working on some kind of global social agenda and yeah I mean that evolved over time but that was my my initial interest was in poli political science and international development and it was kind of like sort of the easiest answer at hand when I looked at the world and I looked at the the imbalances in the world you know I remember a sort of a geography book from from school somewhere where 
there's like a double page and it was about Africa, about the continent of Africa. And the biggest picture it had on it was a young child with, you know, malnutrition and sort of the typical stereotypical image. And, and it's, you know, that's such a stereotypical image, but it was kind of that idea I had, okay, the world is like this, poor people are here, rich people are here. We need to rebalance this. How does it happen? Well, rich people need to go to places like Africa and and, and help them. That was the kind of the, the first conclusion I jumped to a very simple one, but that, that was the idea at the time. Hmm. I'd love to dive into how you learned that that wasn't the case, that it wasn't your job as a rich person to go and then fix someone who was a, a poor person. At least those, those are the words that I'm using. And mm. there's a talk that you gave. This is how I was actually introduced to you. I was in Nadia, our shared colleague and friends course, See You Money. And one of the pieces of homework or one of the assignments was to actually watch your video mm. to there, there were lots of elements of, of the video that we, that the talk that you gave. And, and one of them was basically as a, as a privileged white person, I was going in, you know, I was on these, like, I had expensive water bottles and I was coming in on a nice car and I was tasked with trying to solve these problems that I didn't really have any business solving, right? Like I, it was basically from a hierarchical, I'm here, you're there, let me fix you. And that started to gnaw at, and nag at you a, a little bit, and then eventually a lot of it. And I, I would love to hear you talk about that realization, because that, that seems like the maybe one of the inflection points that brought you to the work that you're doing today. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, so I was, I was 16 when I first started doing this kind of work, because I, I found out about this organization that helped young you know, teens to go overseas and do volunteering in other countries. And a bunch of those projects were in different countries in Europe and a bunch of those projects were in countries that sounded a little bit more unfamiliar and, and interesting. And one of them was Armenia, which is very close to where, where I live, but, you know, in terms of the kind of the levels of wealth and yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a very different context and it felt kind of the most foreign place on the list that I could find. And I went to, um, along with a friend, we went to volunteer in the mountains of Spitak in northern Armenia, which is close to the Georgian border. And there'd been a, there'd been a huge earthquake in the, in the 80s, I think. And there, you know, the earthquake basically kind of destroyed a lot of infrastructure and also orphaned a lot of people. So we went and worked with with an orphanage or people who were in an orphanage and did English classes and drawing and sports and all sorts of stuff. And there was a bunch of volunteers from all over Europe working together and it was a fantastic experience for me as a kind of a 16 year old you know going out into the world experiencing this completely different country different culture and I felt very yeah it was a very fulfilling experience and from there I was like I've got to do this kind of work that was that was the idea and initially um you know it was kind of like a straight line from there I kind of once I'd made my mind up I went for it and a few years later I was I was working in an international NGO had a pretty good position, a good salary. I, I, I made it, quote unquote, made it into, you know, one of those very scarce roles that people really wanted. I'd studied at one of the world's leading places that teach international development. And it was, it had all gone really well, so to speak. And, and I was beginning to feel really um, uncomfortable and unhappy in, in that role. And it was, as you described, it was this kind of experience of being 
of going off to all these different places in the world and feeling how to say this like I was part of a an architecture that was created to deliver resources, basically funding from the global north to projects in the global south. And there's obviously a huge amount of politics that goes on around where that money goes, how it's spent. And it requires a lot of, you know, what we would call technical expertise, like people who will say, okay, well, this is a good project. This is how it should be done. People who will go to visit these projects and learn from them and see how they work and what happens and what doesn't what doesn't work. And so I was one of those people in that sort of in the in those inter intermediate cogwheels between the people making the decisions on where the money goes and the people receiving the funds to carry out the projects that I was kind of working between these different levels, translating basically. But I I got this like the label of a sort of technical expert, you know that I attached to myself. Like I'm an expert on climate change adaptation in sub-Saharan Africa. And I'm an expert on what all of this is to do with gender equality and social inequality. And the truth is I knew all about the architecture and the words and the languages and the frameworks, but I didn't really know the places that I was working with. I didn't really understand the cultures and why, why should I, why would I? I'd never, I was constantly going off to places I've never been before. And and then being treated as this expert and then, you know, going to events where we we would then present kind of the, the successes and the and also sometimes the, the mistakes made and and then which would then lead to more decisions made on funding. And it, there was a real feeling of incongruence. And I can I can say that now, like that, that feels clear now. But at the time, it was just a discomfort. Like at the beginning, it was just a rumbling of this doesn't feel good. I didn't really have the language to explain to myself or to others what didn't feel right. And so there was there was that notion that because I'm because I'm white, because I grew up in Europe, because I was educated in European universities, because English is it's not my first but my second language and I'm fluent in it. For all of those reasons, I was elevated to this status of of expert. But the real experts weren't, you know, they were other people. They weren't me. The real experts in what it takes to survive a drought on the Horn of Africa is not a kid from Vienna. It's the Horn of Africa. And there was also a layer of beginning to recognize how much of the institutional architecture I was embedded in um, was a- an expression of its colonial DNA. Mm. All of these institutions emerging out of colonial structures and we we're still living in the sort of in the in, in the inheritance of that. And I was beginning, you know, gradually beginning to see how this was this was another way of colonialism. This was another way that colonial institutions aren't done. They're they're still around, but you know, at, at one point I talked about them as like zombies, like we think they're dead, but they're actually alive running around. And and we've we're still maintaining them. And it began, I began to feel like what I'm doing, what I was doing there wasn't what I was initially planning to. Like I, I was, I wanted to, I wanted there to be less inequality and more social justice in the world and more balance. And what it began to feel like over time was more of a, a way of making ourselves feel better about the imbalances and about the injustices rather than actually resolving the underlying root causes of what was causing this, this, this imbalance in the world. Because in order to solve those, we didn't need to be carting around the Horn of Africa or you know similar places. We needed to be here, like 
in the seats of power where these decisions are made, where colonialism originated from, and start a different conversation here. And then not start the conversation because the conversation has been happening for a long time, but that's where I needed to put my effort more. So that's kind of what went on on a systemic level, I think, on a kind of political level. But then on a more sort of inner and personal level, I also realized that that there was something about this kind of attachment to the idea of being somebody who is a good person and somebody who is altruistic was unhelpful. And that's where the work with, you know, that you, you have got to know through Nadia comes in, which comes from Peter Koenig, the money work and the work on identity and on our sense of self. But there was something about this attachment to I'm a good person, I'm a helper, I save the world. It feels so, you know, there was there was all of that grandiosity, basically. And I began to see that when I say I'm here to change the world and I'm here to support other help, I am also creating with that, I'm, a, I'm creating a victim, somebody in need of help, and I'm creating a perpetrator, like somebody who's done something to them. And I'm in this drama triangle. I don't know if you've come across the drama triangle before. Yeah in your coaching work you have. So I was basically living the humanitarian drama triangle. <laughs> and yeah, so that explained that all of that language began to explain this kind of grating discomfort and sense that something was off that I began to feel. Mm. So drama triangle, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but the drama triangle is you're either, you're playing one of three roles, right? You're either the victim, the villain, the villain or the hero. Is is that what you mean by drama triangle? Something along those lines. Yeah. The, the way I know it is you're the rescuer, the perpetrator or the victim. And mm-hmm. so I was in the role of rescuer, you know, yeah. I was there to fix. And then there was the victims and then there was the perpetrators. You know, the victims were the people living in poverty all over the world and the perpetrators were the bad corporations and governments and, and those people over there. But I was, you know, we, I was kind of standing outside of that, excluding myself from the problem and seeing myself as somebody who comes in to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. So in a way I wasn't showing up, like I wasn't showing up in the work at all. And mm-hmm. so that's what the work was, what, that's what my work became about over the years was what I want to do is, I want to show up for the change or for the world I want to see, I want to live in. And I want to support other people in showing up for the world they want to live in. Not because I I know how and I can fix them, but because I'm on that journey myself. It's something about being with others in in the struggles that we all share. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's many different ways we can go from here. A couple of reflections and things I'm wanting to underline first. One is... In, in your answer, I was hearing one of the limitations of call it Western education that someone is deemed an expert from learning lots of information, things that you can read in a book and understanding at an intellectual level what is happening when a, really an expert is, as you named it, someone who's actually embodying being there. Why, like who are we to to come in and and prescribe what the solution is when we haven't actually been boots on the ground living in this environment for any amount of time at all, let alone the entire lifetime. And mm-hmm. you know, I love that when we are educated that we learn so much and I think it's really helpful and it's also sorely missing. Like I, I was picturing when a 
when someone wants to be a doctor, you spend so much time in school before you're actually out in the field doing the work. And there's just, there's a lot to be missed there. My, my background in accounting is very much the same. I, I don't know how much that I've used from my education versus just doing the work and getting the experience and getting the reps in. It's one of the traps that I personally fall into all the time when I listen to podcasts is there are parts of me that just want to download the wisdom. Like I want to, I want to listen to someone who's done all of the experiencing already and then I can just internalize it and then if it, don't have to, then I don't have to meditate and I don't have to go to all these different places and, and learn it myself. And a big part of my development the last couple of years, especially has been Mike, you got to experience it to actually embody it. So that is definitely one of the things that I was hearing in your answer. And there was something that really resonated and, and struck a chord in me is around this. It's really well intended a lot of the time, but there's a saviorism. And for me, it's this, there's a white saviorism and it feels tender to share this, but there have been times where, for example, I, I pass a, a homeless person of color and I have this desire to save them, right? Like I, I want to give them, I want to give them lots of money. And it's me kind of projecting my own stuff onto them thinking, you know, if I just give them a lot of money, that's going to fix the problem. And, and in a way, then I can look back at myself and go, Mike, that means that you think that having more money would fix everything about you too. And uh, it takes, a, it takes a lot of courage in my estimation to look inward and to say, you know, this isn't really a productive solution. How can I be in a way that I'm not trying to save this person and I'm not trying to save myself, but I'm really reflecting on what matters to me. And from here, I want to, you wouldn't think based on the conversation that we've had so far that money work would be the direction that we would go. But I know that you encountered money work at this junction in your life where you, you were wanting to look at the, maybe the unconscious parts of yourself, the, you know, like the, the I want to save people. What's this really all about? What is money work and how did it help you be more effective as someone who wanted to do good in the world and to make social change? I imagine that when, when people hear us say money work, that a lot of people imagine it's something about finding ways to get better at making money or at keeping money and managing money. What money work as per, you know, Peter Koenig's work actually is, is, is a way of really exploring ourselves our sort of our, our nature and it's, it's via the medium of money. So, but that's, and it's, that's, the money is so important because money plays a huge, obviously we know it plays a huge role. So the, the money piece is so important because in our relationships, with with each other in the world in the whole system that we've built as humans it obviously plays such a huge role so money work is a way of looking at our relationship to money to begin with so what is my relationship to money and when i say relationship to money i mean what is my response to money you know if you imagine yourself sitting with a friend and you know i don't know they pull up 50 dollars and say here there you go. Take that. <laughs> how does that feel? What comes up for you? Or um, how do you feel when, how do you feel talking about money? How do you feel receiving money? How do you feel giving money? How do you feel paying for things? How do you feel looking at your bank balance? How do you feel looking, doing your finances? And for this is so rich. There's so much that comes up for people. And that's because 
basically we what we do with money is we project parts of ourselves onto it and i know that needs a little bit of unpacking but that's mm-hmm. the, that's the basic thing that's going on here is that unwanted parts of us aspects of us or aspects of us that we really wish we could have but believe we can't or not are not allowed to have or be we kind of externalize and split off from ourselves and project onto this genius empty substance that isn't really anything other than what we say it is because i think you know if we if we break it down we can agree that money in in of itself is empty of any inherent quality it's it's this the product of our amazing capacity as humans to tell very powerful stories that create new you know realities for us so it's it's the product of storytelling and so we tell stories about ourselves and we tell stories about money and the work is in first of all uncovering what these stories are like what is it that i project onto money and therefore i can then identify aspects of myself that i have either you know hidden or disallowed or become completely unconscious of for whatever reason parts of me that have become taboo and unknown and then i can reown them that's the second piece of money work is after becoming aware of what those pieces are is to actually reclaim them take them back and that frees up a lot of psychological agility it frees up a lot of creativity it frees up a lot of transparency with ourselves and in relationship with others and the reason that is so you know the reason that was so helpful in my journey like discovering why I was struggling in my work, what I was curious about doing was that basically I had built an identity around this work. Mm-hmm. I had built an idea of this is who I am over here and over there is this is who I'm not. So I am, I was telling myself, I am an altruist. I am selfless. Bullshit. Um, <laughs> I am, I am I'm, I'm part of the solution. I'm generous, I help others, I'm supportive, da, 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 all these kind of ways of being a good person. And of course, we want to tell ourselves these stories because we get educated, you know, not to be selfish, not to be greedy, not to be this, that and the other. So there's there's reasons for these things. But I had to build this image around this is these are the things I am. And so over on the other side was a taboo around all the things that I didn't want to be or didn't see myself as, which I was basically allocating to the victims and the perpetrators in my drama triangle the problem is when we cling very tightly to that sort of polished piece of our identity all the stuff that we think we're putting away over there doesn't go anywhere it's there but it's in the so-called shadow that's it comes from Carl Jung this this is kind of one of the bases of Peter Koenig's work is Carl Jung's work on shadow and the unconscious and projection But shadow means still part of me, but not part of my conscious self. So a friend of mine, Charles Davies, once said, imagine your body was split down the middle. One half of your body, you're conscious of and you can direct. And the other part of your body, you're completely unconscious of. You can't direct. It just does what it wants. Which part of the body do you want the chainsaw to be in? So the chainsaw is there. Do you want to hold it consciously? Do you want to be aware of it and use it, you know, appropriately to cut trees and not necks? Or do you want to be in the unconscious part of you where you're going to be acting out? Mm-hmm. And so in in holding this 
identity of savior selflessness at altruism very tightly, I was unconsciously acting out all these other parts of me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of exploration I want to do around this. I One thing that I'll name, or maybe it's more than one thing, but there's definitely a way that in my own personal life, and I see it, it's very common that we project that we would be really generous if we had more money, right? Or we would, our sense of freedom, security, stability is dependent upon having money. And if Mm -hmm. I don't have that, then I can't possibly be free, generous, secure, kind, whatever. There's there's any number, it's different for every person, but it's so entangled with our relationship with money. It's such a genius way to look at the things that, are running our life. So that has, that's been one of the most transformative elements personally for me around the work is that I can claim that I am a generous person with and without money. And that this is one of the things I want to get into with you is how do we reclaim these beliefs? So there's the, you named, there's the awareness component. So we can start to maybe look at the things that we're leaning on really hard for you, it's the altruist, the the selfless, you know, the the person that's really helping save the world. Those are, those are the parts of your identity that you maybe were over indexing on. And mm-hmm. right now, I, I imagine when I first came across this work, and I imagine the listener is probably going through some sort of similar dissonance here. It's like, what what would be the benefit of me owning that I'm needy and selfish and greedy and any of those different things. So I guess my my question is twofold. What are the ways that we, or statements that we would make to Mm -hmm. actually make the reclaim? And then what is the benefit of reclaiming these qualities that we deem as not desirable at all? So I'm wondering if we maybe start with the why first and then go into the how. Sure. Yeah. So there, I think two main parts two main parts of my answer to that question uh, of why, what was the benefit of that? One is an individual part and one is a, although it doesn't, it's not necessarily separable, but there's one sort of part on an individual level, your personal life. And then there's also a collective part to this, a cultural part. And so the part, the personal part is that when we actually, no, let me remind, I'm going to start collectively. Mm-hmm. There's someone called Charles Eisenstein. I don't know if you've heard of him. He he talks about meta-narratives of, of humanity, sort of the big stories that we live by. And one of the biggest or the big, the big story we live by in our kind of industrialized, hyper-industrialized West is the story of separateness. Like I'm a separate human being and I'm like this kind of, somebody else called it the skin encapsulated ego. You know, we're like these separate containers but there's also a story of separation, not just between humans, but also separation between us and nature, for example. We separate ourselves from nature. There's this split. And as a result of the split, there's all sorts of other stuff happening you know, right now, which is that because we see ourselves as separate from nature, we have tried to master it and overcome it. We exploit it. We treat it like a, we treat nature like a resource that we can just you know, keep using and using and using rather than understanding that we are actually part of the very system that we're destroying and exploiting and so everything we do to quote unquote it we do to ourselves Mm. 
So that that links into another narrative, which is the narrative of interbeing and of connectedness. And in his book on climate change, A Climate, A New Story, he talks very beautifully about how much of the sort of solutions to the ecological crisis we're in, but also the social crises we're living, like we're kind of in a permacrisis right now, are to do with that story of separateness and how we need to move into the story of interbeing, of connectedness in order to, you know, move, move ourselves through this crisis and how much of the answer to climate change and to all of these social crises are currently still coming from that place of separateness. Mm-hmm. And that also all ties into, into money. Money is, is the, in the way that we live it now and the way that we structure it now, it's very tied to the story of separateness. And it's very tied to the story of individual survival. Like if I have more, I get to survive, but I'll take it from you. And then you get, you have less chances of survival. If I have more of this, then I have more freedom than you have. There's all of this separateness going on. So for me, there's something about this, this relationship to money, which is also that we have collectively in the global industrialized North or West or whatever you want to call it, is that we, and if you look at kind of two possible responses to crisis or to to changes in the world, you know, the, the pandemic being a good example, there is, or yeah, kind of any, any kind of crisis, but there is that response of scarcity and of fear, basically a fear-based response where we like, we think of like, how will I survive this? What, what do I need? What will I get through? This is where, you know, you, you see these scenes of people, I don't know, hitting each other over the heads with TV screens on Black Friday or something, but this is this kind of sense of, I need me separate. But then there are also other responses to crisis, which are really beautiful. People suddenly, you know, neighborhoods that have neighbors that haven't been talking to each other suddenly start working together and making sure everybody in the street has food is accounted for. Like there's all of that stuff happening too. We have these two modes of being. And that is basically, I think, what we're talking about when we're talking about the story of separateness versus the story of interbeing. And our stories with money are very related to that. We can live, we can be around money from this place of of scarcity and of fear, or we can be around it and around ourselves from this place of connectedness and interbeing. Mm -hmm. And so for me, this is why this work is so important on a, not just on an individual scale, but actually on a sort of collective level and on the level of the whole world and of the whole mess we're in right now which is so much this story of scarcity and fear and shoring up of resources. And of all the things, you know, all the things we project onto money fall within two, fall on a continuum within two extremes. On the one, on the one hand, you have life-giving. On the other hand, you have annihilation. Like in, you know, unions or psychologists would talk about maybe Eros and Thanatos, but there's these two principles there's life and there's death there's life-giving there's annihilation and if you look at the stories we have about money if i ask a group of people what is money the answers to that question will be anywhere between these two extremes and will cover these two extremes money secures my life not having money will kill me money gives power money destroys money is freedom money is a trap Money is a force for good. Money is a source of evil. It's all there. It's really remarkable when you when you really when you when you ask people that question, "What is money?" You will get all of these answers, and they fall into this whole width of the totality of human life, or of life on Earth. So we we 
we project all of these aspects on our of ourselves and of our of of our being onto this but in doing so we're denying ourselves parts of ourselves that belong to us mm. and we're denying ourselves parts of ourselves that we need to be able to to act to act in the world from from the places that we actually want to be acting from from a place of love basically mm-hmm. and so that is why this is important collectively but also important individually is when when i don't need money to be free when i don't need money to feel secure when i don't need money to i don't know when i don't need money to feel i have value then i can have true value then i can truly feel free mm-hmm. but if i if i need the money to be free and if i need the money to have to have value if i need money to feel loved whatever it is i will never feel truly free loved and of value because i forever externalize it and that's what you see happening in the world with people who run after money it's like there will always be a need for more somebody thinks they need $200,000 to be to feel safe and secure i bet you when they get to the 200,000 it will be 500,000 and when they get to the 500 it'll be a million and then it'll be 10 million and then it'll be a billion it never stops because the freedom the security never comes from the money mm-hmm. it has to be in you and so undoing those stories the power of those stories is 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 the true freedom and that's why it's also also so valuable on an individual level mm-hmm. and and for me you know in my personal story it was the same with with other things it's not just money we project on we project on we project all day <laughs> like all the yeah. time we can't stop ourselves from doing it but it's helpful to become aware of it but if i project you know my belonging in the world, my sense of value onto a role in in my work, in my life, or onto a person that I'm helping that needs to be needy so that I can be helpful. Mm -hmm. And I'm never going to feel that sense of value myself either. And so undoing these, or kind of becoming familiar or aware of these pieces around what I was projecting of my own neediness, of my own insecurity, onto others so that I could feel secure and helpful and altruistic and like a good person was also an important piece. And that's why it links into my story. And it also just so happened to be at a time when I had quit my job and had, you know, cut the the umbilical cord to my monthly salary and was feeling the the fear of that, like the 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 thrill and the fear of of being cut loose from that income. And so it was it was relevant on a sort of very practical level, but it was also relevant on a much deeper level. Mm. So can we walk through maybe a rep on a positive reclamation, the, the process of what it would be to reclaim the positive? So maybe your sense of freedom would be a really common one or security. And mm. then a negative too, a negative projection and and what's possible there when we do the reclamation on on both of those poles, right? The in yes. a sense of yeah like total freedom or i guess life giving life affirming and then annihilating and what's mm-hmm. possible when we can just own that that's it all exists in us mm-hmm. okay so the basic kind of starting point is that when you try and become aware of a story is to notice as you were just saying whether it's a, a positive or a negative quality that we attach to this and 
when I say positive or negative, that's a highly individualized question. Like for some people, something can be a positive that for another person is a negative. So it needs to be clear whether we have a sort of a, a feeling of going towards that thing or whether we want to push it away. Mm-hmm. Also, do we, you know, do we want to pull money towards us? Do we feel like we have to keep accumulating the stuff to feel better? Or do we feel like we keep pushing it away because actually receiving it is really uncomfortable and painful? Mm. That's the case for so many people. So there are really important clues in those responses. So if you if you're somebody who you know, who keeps accumulating money and keeps needing more and wanting more and has no problem taking it, asking for it, wanting it, chances are you have a lot of positive projections onto money. If you're somebody who gets really uncomfortable about receiving money and just kind of like, you know, shies away from it, doesn't ask for it, has a tendency to get into a lot of debt, spend a lot, you know, when it comes in, just spend it all. Chances are there's a lot of negative projections onto money. And quite many of us are what Peter would lovingly call the washing machines, basically the the cycling, you know, having both a mixture of positive and, and negative. Yeah, that's me too. <laughs> uh, positive and negative projections, which then leads to behaviors where the money comes and goes and comes and goes and comes and goes like a, a cycle, like a washing machine. So that's the first piece. And then when you know whether it's a positive or a negative quality, you know how to work with it. That's what I'm that's what I'm getting to. So, for example, when when I was uh, soon after I left my 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 sort of full time job in the international development wor- world, I became pregnant and I was going to have a baby, and I was kind of struggling with the the notion of of financial dependence that came with. Like I went from being somebody who took a lot of pride in being financially independent and standing on my own feet, and there's all this language around that to knowing that a time was coming when that was no longer going to be the case and me and my partner Tom were going to be much more financially interdependent and I was going to be dependent on his money and that made me very angry (laughs) at the time so it resulted in me acting out in all sorts of ways because I was feeling resentful about that and so there was something about dependency and neediness that I was feeling really uncomfortable with so when it's a negative like being in in my case, feeling dependent did not feel good. Feeling needy did not feel good. You start with using phrases that will basically tell you, well, it's the case for all of the money work, but you're basically telling yourself something which will sound like a total lie to you and your being and your body, your body in particular, your body will have its answers to this (laughs) statement. So you're telling yourself a useful lie. In the, in the case of a negative projections is to simply say something like, I'm dependent and it's okay. Or I'm dependent and it's great. Or even a bigger lie, I'm dependent and it's amazing. And as I say that, you know, there's like, there can be a charge that comes up in my body. So there's, there's something about noticing what happens when I, when I tell myself this lie that feels so completely wrong. I can't possibly be dependent. I can't possibly be needy. Yuck. That's disgusting. Like, you know, there can be all sorts of stuff that comes up. And the interesting thing is, this is, this is what Peter discovered is that these lies do work in our bodies. And you were talking earlier about the difference between theoretical experience and embodied experience. So there's there's a beautiful synthesis here in the sense that we use our minds in this work to uncover the stories. Sometimes we use our minds and sometimes it's our bodies that tell us the stories anyway, but we can use our our intellect and our our knowledge and our understanding of ourselves to do the archaeology 
the digging and find the pieces. But then it's the embodiment that actually does the shifting. It's not the thinking. So you use the words as an entry point into your body, into your nervous system. It doesn't have to be words. It can also be completely imaginal. It can be movement-based. It doesn't have to be language. It just so happens that that's the sort of the entry point that Peter found. But I also work with this through through movement, through through images, through posture. It doesn't have to be words. But words just so happen to be such useful currency, pun intended, um, in, in our culture. So you tell yourself this useful lie. And it'll be sticky. You know, if it's a good lie, it'll feel yucky. And for most of us, we will be able to recognize and register some kind of physiological response in our bodies and track it, like follow it. Sometimes that is not the case. It doesn't work for everybody. And that's because for some people, for really good reasons, accessing our sensations, our physiological you know, existence will be will be blocked in some way or difficult. And when that is the case, that is, you know, I, that is, that is, that's, that's useful information. That's important information because there's always a really good reason for it. And that's usually because feeling stuff, you know, will have been at one point in life or many points in life, completely too much overwhelming and therefore has been um, suspended in some way. And that's something that we need to respect. So I just want to put this disclaimer out there that sometimes when we, we don't feel, and that is okay. That is something that needs to be respected. And when that is the case, then we can, you know, we can work on that gradually, like with, with time and self-compassion is something that can be done about that. But it's, it's not something that we would kind of want to white knuckle through a goal, like, okay, must feel this now. Yeah. But usually we'll be able to notice something. It can even be numbness, you know, but notice something in your body. And so when I say things like I'm dependent and it's okay I can currently feel a little slight tension in my shins, like just an ever so slight sort of contracting of my of the muscles in my shins. Yeah. And being needy. I'm needy and it's okay. You see, I have no problem being needy anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like it's gone. It's like, no, being needy is fantastic. <laughs> but you'll you notice a resistance and a feeling. And, the, and it's not about fighting that feeling, but it's about just noticing it's there. Mm-hmm. Then what you do next is you get curious about the opposite, the polarity of this quality. What's the opposite of being needy? What's the opposite of being independent? So in my case, that would have been, I stand on my own two feet. I'm independent. I'm confident, like, you know, all sorts of stuff. And you go there and then you have another set of statements that goes with the opposite and it's what you mentioned earlier. It's the with and without, Yeah. in this case, money. But it can be anything we project on. It can be with and without money. It can be with and without my job title, with and without the person doing this and that. Like Whatever we project on is the with and without. And it's important, Peter has taught me this over the years, the language really matters because it is from a nervous system perspective, and I really feel this is true, there's a nuance and a difference between saying, with and without mm-hmm. or with or without mm-hmm. because the and is the glue that binds it together is the and is the integrating with or you you're still allowed a degree of splitting you can still go yeah this or that with and you're kind of holding it all together and the body hears the difference mm-hmm. so you go to the opposite and you go something like i can be independent with and without money 
And then again, you notice what your body says in response to that. And often there is resistance or sometimes there can be a sense of, ooh, oh yeah, actually, ooh, okay, yeah, I can be independent with and without money. Huh, okay. Or there can be a, a smidgen of that. And then you almost like do a pendulum, like you go back. Okay, I'm needy and it's okay. And then see, I'm dependent and it's great. You know, this is this, this kind of dance between these two opposites. And usually what happens is that your nervous system, which has been holding these pieces in place about you over the years, will start to hear a different truth ringing through and it will start to readjust things a little bit. And that can come in the form of a slight release or it can come in the form of a huge release. It can be, you know, sometimes we burst into tears. Sometimes we start to laugh out loud. Like I've laughed and cried so much during these reclamations, but there is, there, there is a release that happens, a letting go. Yeah. And then something kind of finds a new place in us. And that's the, that's the basic work with, with a negative projection. When it's a positive one, it's merely the other way around. You just start with the other place. You just start with the with and without. I can be this positive thing or do this thing with and without the thing I project on. And then you go back to the opposite, to the, okay, then you inquire, you know, what's the, what's the negative thing I don't want to be? And then you go to that and say, I can do this and that with, and uh, sorry, I, I'm this and that, and it's okay. And there is also on that side of things of the so-called formula, there's also important nuance there in the different degrees. So it's different saying I'm dependent and it's okay. And saying I'm dependent and it's bloody amazing. There's a different, there's a different energy that comes with it. So the, and it's okay has a very sort of soft yielding compassionate quality. And the, and it's amazing is, has a very sort of like cut through powerful fuck it energy. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they're, they're sort of almost like yin and yang a little bit. And we can go into that more because there's more to say about why they help in different ways, but it's important. I feel to try out the different layers and different degrees and statements, because sometimes you need the compassion to let it go. And sometimes you need the cut through power to let it go. And sometimes you need other things to let it go. That's where the, the beauty of, you know, sensing together and co-regulating comes in, but yeah. Yeah. Very long answer to your brief question. I love it. I love it. I mean, that's, that's the beauty of doing a long form interview like this. I want to have a rich exploration of this work and, and other elements of your work as well. This isn't meant for the, uh, the three-step nor is money work for that matter. It's not the, uh, three steps to financial freedom. And this podcast is not the three prescriptive ways that you can enhance your life and <laughs> have better overall well-being. Although my my goal certainly is that someone leaves these conversations feeling that way. I want to, yeah, there's, there's like a part of me that wants to make it a little tangible or me even just to echo back the way I'm hearing it as a, a deepening of my understanding and hopefully a deepening of the listener's understanding is one of the, I guess the punchline of this work is I am unconditionally or I am inherently all of, all of these different qualities, right? I, I am unconditionally loving, generous, selfish, selfless, selfish, 
<laughs> and, and one of the things that actually I wanted to bring up actually is that a lot of the qualities in my cohort of CU Money had nothing to do with money. And it's a beautiful part of this work is that it's not, it isn't just money that we project on, or it isn't just, there, there's so many different ways that we are hiding from aspects of ourselves, and our body is always letting us know. So a, a tangible personal example for me is if someone were to call me awkward and for a large part of my life, especially when I was younger, I felt a certain way in my body. If someone called me awkward, I would feel this kind of collapsing. There'd be like a clench in my gut and in my heart, and I'd want to fall over that. And one of the ways that I segmented that was to say, okay, well, I'm going to armor up and do everything in my power to not be awkward anymore. And so what feels possible in this work is that, okay, so we identified awkward is a quality that I have segmented from myself that I said, I don't do that anymore. And so we go, okay, that word has a lot of charge. I am awkward and that's okay. And it's a lie at first, for sure. Still sometimes feels like a lie. And the body will let you know. So I, I guess I'm repeating this for my own learning and for listener, just if you think about a quality that you definitely don't want to be, it's actually a really good place to start on the negative pole of things. What mm -hmm. happens over time is you start to, A, it loosens up in your body. And I want to actually get into nervous system, the nervous system with you, because I know that you have lots of, you've looked into polyvagal theory and you are just a, a beautiful student of the human biology. So I want to get there, but it frees up so much energy that it, it, it costs a lot of energy, let's just say, to try and block the things that you don't want to be. And when you just allow yourself to be awkward, like what you were saying with the, the ecstatic, like, yeah, I'm really fucking awkward. It's incredible. It sounds silly, but it actually just frees up all that energy that maybe most of my life I have been using to not be that thing. Mm -hmm. And to even if you want to enroll your mind even more, you can start to gather evidence about why it's so freaking amazing to be awkward. There's, there's different ways that yeah, being awkward has helped me have more empathy for other people. It makes me more relatable, whatever, there's a million different things that we can make up about and why being needy, needy was a huge one for me. Someone who's consciously needy would maybe would ask for affection if that's what they're wanting, would ask for uh, what they feel like they deserve. Being needy is not inherently a good or bad thing. And that was one of my primary takeaways. You can, if you're consciously needy or manipulative or whatever it is, and conversely, if you're unconsciously altruistic, there are, well, on the conscious side of things, it's, it can always be wielded for things that are beneficial for all. And on the unconscious side of things, it can always be harmful and detrimental to all. And this work really, for me, has just helped me make more conscious all parts of myself. And not only has that created much more self-awareness and self-compassion and understanding and really love living from this place of love more often, it helps me see the true essence of every person that I encounter. Right. It, it helps me feel more natural love, empathy, compassion for all people, because if 
you know, maybe someone who's really charged for me in the past and still to a certain degree, I'm, I'm constantly working on it would be, I don't know, let's just say someone like an Elon Musk, someone who I would label as really selfish, greedy, out of touch, frick, well, there's so many different words. And if I can own that, actually, there are parts of me that are like that, too. I have more compassion and empathy for Elon Musk. I know that he's just a, a person who's got a strategy to try and accumulate things because at some point he learned that was the best way to be. And that's OK. So it, it just fosters so much more connection and love, really. So it's been a bunch of stuff on my mind as I've heard you speak, but mm. one of the things that came up was Jim Hollis's idea of the first and second adulthood, or whether he actually borrowed that from Carl Jung. But there's this idea that, you know, we come out into the world as young adults with this kind of first idea of who we are and who we should be. And then at some point that starts malfunctioning or there's some kind of sense of mismatch and, some something's not working. So in my in my case, that would have been this experience of something grating on me when I was doing my my work in my first career, and and that brings on a some kind of form of of crisis of identity and of a form of sort of destruction and or deconstruction. Let's call it deconstruction because it's not as maybe it can be as brutal as it sounds, but there's something about deconstructing ourselves, taking ourselves apart, and putting ourselves back together in a new way. And and second adulthood is where we often engage more fully in what Carl Jung called individuation, which is becoming whole or becoming our, our true selves. Mm. And I don't, I'm not a huge fan of the word individuation because it really feeds into this whole meta narrative of the separate self, but because it actually kind of does the opposite. It's, it's a connecting with ourselves more fully. And therefore, as you just so beautifully explained with others, like when we are in better relationship, when I'm in better relationship with all the different parts of myself, then I can be in better relationship with all the parts of you. And that's what we notice in our relationships when we do this work is we get less triggered or when we do get triggered, we know we know what we can do about that. And we can respond with more spaciousness and more freedom and more agency and agility because we may have a trigger, but then instead of believing our story immediately, we can have, we have a way of, of having an inquiry about it or even doing something about it and having a bit more space to come to a place to to respond from love and compassion. And, and that's really the beauty of this work because so often I've, and, and that was my initial resistance too, you know, when Peter was saying things to me, like along the lines of, I remember saying to him, I want to deal with the problems in the world. And he said something like, you're the problem in the world. <laughs> you know? I got really angry. Or when it comes to reclaiming things like I'm a violent psycho, or I don't know, whatever it might be. This isn't about us then becoming like, yeah, let me go and wield my axe and chop people's heads off or figuratively speaking, or literally what this work does is it when we reclaim these parts of ourselves, they do come into our more conscious hand. As I said earlier with this body split down the middle thing, we, we become better able to discern an appropriate loving response to what happens. So this isn't a carte blanche for becoming a, you know, narcissistic, needy, selfish, whatever kind of hundred percent difficult person. It's actually a way of becoming more whole so that we can use these different parts of ourselves in appropriate ways. So Peter calls that the test of appropriateness. And 
doing the test of appropriateness becomes more possible for us when we have more access to all these parts of ourselves. Um, and what you were saying about the, the energy involved in pushing down the unconscious pieces is really important here. You made me think of, so, you know, part of my journey since leaving the international development world or sort of coming out of it gradually has been training as a therapist. And I came across the work of Stacey Millichamp, Millichamp, who's a transpersonal therapist here in the UK. And one of the frameworks that she's come up with really beautifully expresses what we're talking about with money work as well, which is this kind of a me and what is not me. And you can literally do that on a piece of paper. You can draw a line down the middle, write me on one side and not me. Or what, what comes up. But then importantly, there's the space between the me and not me. And that's what she calls the edge. And there are, there are parts of earth that are working there. And their edge figures are like the police patrolling the territory between me and not me. So depending on how our psyche is constellated, that wall or that edge between me and not me can be extremely porous or it can be very rigid or it can be, you know, beautifully kind of light and existing, but light enough. But there will be actors there who'll be patrolling the edge and who'll be stopping things from crossing the border. Mm-hmm. And that costs a lot of resources. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the policing is expensive, so to speak. So there's also something in this work for me about coming into relationship with our edge figures and identifying who they are. What is that voice in me that says, when, when I do this, you know, who are these different parts of us? We can do a little bit of digging around where they came from. They're, they're, they're always there with good reason. They're always actually, they're not trying to sabotage us. They're trying to keep us safe. So all of these stories we have about ourselves, all of these me's and not me's we have assembled in our psyche or in our, in our being, because we want to, from when we enter this world until we leave it, we want to belong and we want to live. And that's what we do. We create these stories and these separations because all of these things help us be, you know, when you're saying not be awkward, it's you want to be part of your peer group and you want to be respected and loved and part of it. So not being awkward becomes incredibly important for belonging. Mm -hmm. Awkward goes in the not me pile. And there'll be a part of you that will be very invested in making sure that awkward Michael does not get a chance to cross that line. Mm-hmm. And so in addition to this archaeology around what are the stories, there's also so- something about who are the edge figures? What job are they doing? What are they trying to do for me? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is, there, is there anything else that uh, around money work that you would want to address in the conversation before I shift a little bit into other elements of your work that I really admire? Yes, there is a couple of things I would love to add. One I think I've kind of addressed already, because for me, there is something about the compassion, the importance of the compassion here and and the the kindness to ourselves. Like we, we have these constructs in ourselves with good reason. We, if there's a part of me that, you know, has picked up at some point, it's not okay to be this. It will have been really important not to be selfish. It will have been really important not to be needy. It might have saved your life even. All of yeah, all of these kind of stories we have, they're there for a good reason. So if at some point it has become incredibly important to, you know, if, if your role in the family was to keep everyone happy, maybe because there might have been a very sick sibling who needed constant support and help. And if you had been needy, then 
that might have really compromised the sibling or it might have compromised something for you. It might have led to exclusion, whatever. But all of these things feel of vital importance in the moment and they really are. So they're responses and, and stories that we have learned not to sabotage ourselves, but to actually survive something or support ourselves. And I think as such, we need to meet all of this material with, with real kindness and also gratitude, I think, for the job these parts of us have, or these edge figures have done. And so the the reason I say this, and it's important to say it here, is because I feel that sometimes when we when we enter this work, we start doing it, we can try and become incredibly sort of categorical and systematic and almost like, you know, when you're doing it with peers, almost like trying to catch each other out. What's the projection? What are you doing here? Okay, I've got you. I've got you. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with this because it happens. Yeah. You know? and, and that makes sense. And at the same time, the beauty of this work is because it's all about love. And so it needs to come from a place of love, including especially towards ourselves. So there's something about staying loving in loving relationship with all the different pieces, which is what we're doing eventually anyway, when we reclaim them, but also staying in loving relationship with the fact that we have split parts off and that has, that, that has been necessary. And the second piece is that my experience with this work is that it functions like almost like an onion. So it's layer after layer after layer. So if you've peeled one layer off, there will be another layer underneath and you peel that one off and there's another one underneath. And I'm thinking that probably if you get to the middle of the onion, you're in nirvana or something. <laughs> <laughs> you're enlightened, you're done. Then you, you, then you have left this earth. So it's like, you know, but this is to say, it's this ongoing work. Like I'm not sitting here telling you this because I've reclaimed all of my projections and I'm done. Like it's, mm -hmm. that's not how this works. It's a, it's a constant process of, of discovery of self and of others and of relationship mm. with it. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for naming all of that. It's, it's always a powerful and very helpful reminder to internalize that every strategy that we have, every part of ourself that we might have tagged as unhelpful or not supportive of our growth or what, whatever story we might have about it is here for a really, really good reason. It, yeah. it might have even saved our life, like you said, at some point in our life. And a lot of this work is realizing, maybe for me personally, it wasn't safe to be awkward when I was eight, but I can now show this part of myself, I'm not eight anymore, so it's safe. I'm safe to be awkward. And it, it wasn't safe, so thank you for keeping me safe at that point, but it is now. And we can do that with any number of different qualities. I also, I wrote this down as something that I think is a really practical on-ramp into money work too. It's not related to what you just said, but if you as a listener, just imagine yourself right now giving someone, whatever the number is, $100,000 or a million dollars or $10 million, or even if it's $50, for me, that $50 could be that could charge up a lot in my body. That's one easy on-ramp into well, what happens in my body as I experience the thought of giving someone that amount of money. And on the other end, what if you were to imagine yourself receiving that same sum of money, $50, $100, million. And like you, Agnes, I, <laughs> I have this dissonance of, uh, they're both very uncomfortable. I, in some ways, find receiving money and asking for money to be, you know, I all sorts, I have all sorts of stories about being needy and greedy and all of that. And on the flip side to 
be receiving it is like, well, I'm already so privileged and who am I to be receiving this money? And so that it's a, it's a beautiful practice. I would love to hear practices and it doesn't have to be around money work, but just what are, what are practices that you use to refine your own awareness and uh, embodiment and all the different things that we have spoken about so far in this conversation? Yeah. So I often say to clients that there are two routes into this work and that's probably not true. There's probably a million, but there are sort of two, two that I speak of, which is, I call it the narrative route and the embodied route. Mm. So the narrative route, meaning stories. And often I ask people about their money stories, like they're sort of the story of their lives. And what I might do is, um, you know, getting people to draw a circle or a line that sort of represents I like circles because I like to think about time in circular ways, but um, it could also be a line, but just a, a circle or a line that represents the life of the person so far and childhood and adolescence and at early adulthood and later adulthood, and then sort of mark on that line, some key events that were to do with money because everybody has them. maybe even an earliest memory of, of interactions with money with people and some, something picked up around that. And then with those events, you can then start picking out, okay, what, how did the money show up for me there? Like what, what did it represent? What did it symbolize in that event? And so that's a really good way of doing the, you know, what I would call the archeology span piece of this work is, is this narrative story route. And my partner, Tom also works with this. And I think he calls it, you know, he calls it your money life story as like a piece, like that's what you do. The, the embodied route is more along the lines of what you just described, this kind of more Im, like immediate visceral route into, okay, what are my responses to something? And I would actually suggest maybe even playing with this quite physically. I mean, I know so much of money is digital now anyway, this might become irrelevant very soon. But for those of us who still grown up with cash and who, who will have had our earlier imprints around money with cash, um, it might be really helpful to do that. And, um, you know, when I first, when I first did money work, it was with Charlie Davies and he, we sat in a cafe and he got me to get all my money out and all my cards on the table. And then he just took it. <laughs> <laughs> and then he said, we're done. And I was like, what? And he said, yeah, yeah, we're done. Do you need anything else? And I'm like, what? So you were taking all my money? And he said, yeah. And so we, we, we kind of took it from there and I did get some of my money back. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's it's a very immediate, like you get to a very immediate response. So there is something about maybe just taking a piece, a, a, I don't know, maybe a $100 bill or a $10 bill and just like sticking it in front of you and like moving it around between your hands and just kind of noticing, what does it feel like to hold this in my hands? Charlie would maybe, maybe ask something like, what is the money saying to you? Mm. That's a really good question. What's the money saying to you? Um, what does it feel like to hold this? And what's that like? You know, what's it like to hold a bill compared to holding this piece of paper, which is not money, but I could, you know, it could be like that. That's also just paper. This thing over here is just paper and this paper up here is just paper. So, you know, there's um there's something about um yeah, really getting to the, the visceral response. And another tool I find incredibly helpful for that, which is maybe not something that's so easy to do like at home individually, but there's something called the Finthorn money game. I don't know if you've come across it. It's, it comes from a place in Scotland here in the UK. Mm -hmm. 
called Findhorn, which is like a sort of a very a long-standing community of of people with interesting ideas. And the Fintorn money game is being is played all over the world. It's a sort of an open technology that you can download and use. And it's basically people sitting around a table together and playing, interacting with real money, with their money. So you bring your money and then you have interactions with it. And that's a really good way of exploring your relationship to money because first of all, you'll be asked to do stuff and you'll see how you respond to that. But also people will be doing things and you can't control what they're doing and you'll see how they how you respond to that. And it's a bit of a simulation of what goes on in life. It tells you a lot about yourself and money. And then from there, obviously, it tells you a lot about yourself. So that's part of the visceral route. And another part of the visceral route is just noticing what are the qualities in people that make me feel triggered. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when... Sometimes people do something and we get angry and that's because they've done something to make us angry, of course. But um, sometimes there can be real patterns about that. Like we get really annoyed when somebody does this thing and we get annoyed everybody t- every every time somebody does it. So, you know, I, I have one that I've been working on for years around people who are, what would you call it? Like the opposite of humble, like sort of show off the yeah. yep. humble bragging. Like that just really gets me. And so I, that's an ongoing piece of work for me is to kind of work into the various different layers, which is to do, you know, which comes down to at the very bottom to my right to exist in this world and how welcome did, do I and did I feel in the world and so on. So there's there's all of that um, that kind of comes out. So noticing other people and noticing what gets my heart rate going, what makes me feel uncomfortable, or also what makes me envious and jealous and, you know, all those things. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. I'll say um, just, what's that? All of that helps draw the map of yeah. the me. And, yeah. Yeah. I, I'd say another a personal practice, and maybe this could be helpful, is if I, for example, if I order food from a restaurant and I have the, a normal amount that I might tip, what if I imagined doubling and actually did it what if i doubled that tip or what if i halved the tip or what if i didn't give a tip at all what Mm -hmm. story would i start to tell about myself if that happened or what story what loop would i be caught in around if on the high end maybe there's scarcity and on the i don't tip that it makes me whatever selfish and all the shadowy qualities that we spoke about today so thank you, Agnes. Thank you so much for the crash course on money work. There's there's so much that we can glean from this. And I still, if you're up for it, there's still a couple of elements of your work that I want to explore. And one of them is just maybe a, having a fundamental baseline understanding of the nervous system, which has come up in, in some ways. And, and you actually explicitly did bring in the nervous system at one point. And I would love to hear you just maybe at a high level talk about how understanding the nervous system can be really helpful for us developing self-awareness and continuing to grow, develop, evolve to really, it's kind of invoking the we are nature too, because nature in a way is always evolving. And if if we're not in touch with our nervous system, we get stuck and then that's when we're not a part of nature. So, or at least we make up that we are. So I would yeah. love to hear you talk a little bit about the nervous system. Okay. Oh, there's so much. And I'm going to have to be kind of careful in my in my mind right now to kind of 
pick a thread and stick with it because there's so much to say. I, I get very passionate about this topic. Um, so we are wired as human beings for, I think, probably two main things. And they're, they're interrelated, but um, there's survival and there is connection. And, and that really ties into this whole business of the story of the separate self and the story of separateness and the story of interbeing that we talked about earlier, these kind of meta narratives, because you can tell a story about the nervous system that is very based on the separate, on the separateness, which is all about individual survival. Or you could tell a story about the nervous system that is much more tied into the story of interbeing, which talks about the fact that our nervous systems are much better understood as these open, interactive system, like almost the like the sort of the mycelii of the fungus in the forest underground that connects trees with one another. So it, there's an understanding of the nervous system that is emerging. I was recently reading a piece on this again about how it's uh, about how much more connected we are than we think with one another all the time and with everything and everyone around us. So that's that's a really important piece here. And then there's also something about in our wiring that we can be in two fundamentally different states. We can be in a state of social enclosure and of, of, separ of separating ourselves, or we can be in a state of social connection and interaction, or others would call it, you know, the sort of the survival brain and the, the social engaged brain. And, and for me, that makes the nervous system such an important partner in social change, because if we're talking about, you know, the meta narrative level that Charles Eisenstein speaks to about how important the story of interbeing is for survival, then it is important that we recognize when we are in our survival response as an individual and when we are in a more connected response and how when what enables that. And to tie this back into the money work, for me, what the money work does is it enables us to spend more time in our connected brain, in our connected nervous system, because we get less defensive, we get less jumpy, <laughs> we we become more spacious within ourselves. And as we sort of, you know, reclaim the various pieces towards those really edgy edges of, of life and death, we become more able to, to act in the world from a loving place that isn't just about our own individual survival in the world. And I think if we can do that, we can overcome a lot of the challenges we're up against right now. And we can kind of, you know, evolve as a species um, towards better connection and mutual symbiosis with the other life forms on this planet. Um, so that's why for me, money work and nervous system are so related. Unfortunately, I'm not a neuroscientist myself. And this is part of my story is that I was very early on, like told that I'm very good at languages and at music and at the arts and the politics and very quickly built this story that I'm not a science person. So I came to things like neuroscience and psychology very late. Well, not very late, but, you know, much later than I maybe should have or what would have wanted to. And I have some theories about the money work and, and the nervous system, which I, or some hypotheses, I would say, which I would really love to chat through with a, a proper neuroscientist sometime. But basically, sort of our, our survival biology or, or the nervous system biology in these two different modes rest on a theory right now, or a theory rests on them, I don't know how to put this, whereby we have like a number of different sort of levels of stress response. Mm -hmm. in the, 
nervous system. And learning about these different kinds of stress response and safety response, what they feel like as a sensation in my body, what they are experienced like in the way I think and in the way I am with myself and in the way that I can connect with the world around me has been life-changing for me. And that's why I'm so passionate about sharing it with others. So the polyvagal theory by Stephen Purgess holds that we have these, you know, there's these two basic differences. This is one basic difference, which is, are we in social engage or are we in social disengage mode? Like, am I able to connect? And am I all about going out there and connecting and, and love and generosity and collaboration and curiosity? Or am I all about defending my life or defend, defending myself? And if we go a few hundred million years back into our sort of, you know, reptile and mammal evolutionary history, that was kind of the, the key basic difference is am I, am I just breathing and digesting and resting here? Or am I, am I, def- am I running for my life or fighting something? So there's that basic difference, but then there's also further layers to this, which are about depending on how high the level of threat to my nervous system is, to my body, to my survival, I might be in a different mode, which, you know, there's all kinds of fancy nervous system language around that, which I don't like chucking at people. But the the most simple, beautiful model I've come across is by Deb Dana, the stress ladder. And it has three levels. And on the sort of the basic level is, you know, when I color this in, it's usually green. It's like it's the safe, connected, calm, open, receptive place where my body feels able to restore its energies, to rest, to get nutrients out of food. Um, And where emotionally I'm capable of connecting with others, where I'm receptive and curious and I feel connected with myself and with the world around me. And, you know, my, my breath is even, my body temperature is kind of on a medium level. I have peripheral vision and so on. So if you think of a place or a person or an activity where you just feel really grounded and safe and held and happy and content, and you notice what happens in your body as you take yourself there, those are the kinds of experiences that, you know, where we have in that place. And as the stress levels go up, in the nervous system, we reach a place that is that we could call fight or flight. So there's a, a mobilization of energy that occurs in the body that is required for running really fast or fighting really hard. And that was necessary sort of way back when, you know, when it was all about for humans about escaping from a mammoth or from a saber toothed tiger or fighting or yeah. So that's, there's that kind of fight, there's that fight or flight biology in us, but the same thing happens when we get an email that you know contains stressful information or when somebody rubs us up the wrong way or when the bus leaves the bus stop and i haven't reached haven't reached it or when i leave the house and realize i've locked myself out or whatever it is that same instinct to run or fight kicks in when we have our more kind of contemporary stresses and and that it can be helpful like if you leave your house and you need to you know you see the buses on the corner and you need to run you need to run that's great your body will help you run because it's wired to do that but when it comes to an interaction with another human being who's who's pissed us off then the 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 the, the fight mobilization might not be that helpful or it could be you know it depends there's again there's a test of of appropriateness and then a level up from there is is the third response which is the is the freeze or immobilization response where you know the body goes into some kind of state of shutdown and overwhelm this is where from an evolutionary perspective 
This is like the game over program where the saber toothed tiger has grabbed you by the ankle and your nervous system thinks it's over basically. And what the body does at that point is it goes, you know, there's the immobilization, the floppiness playing possum, which is this kind of last ditch survival attempt. If I play dead, will the saber toothed tiger spend a, se- a split second not paying attention and I can remobilize back into flight and run. And then with that, there's also the numbing and the dissociation, the checking out that is the preparation for the worst and, and making the worst less bad. Basically there's something about just leaving altogether our psyche. So that's what happens to us when we get really overwhelmed with either a one-off shock event or when stresses just build and build and build and build and build and just become too much over time. So that's where we are in a place of, of hopelessness, of it's pointless, I can't, of powerlessness. We may lose our capacity to express ourselves. We may lose our capacity to move. And I speak here very literally and very figuratively. So this is true both physiologically as well as in life. Because what I'm also talking about in these two different levels of response is irritability, anxiety, and depression on these different levels. And yeah, so... The most important tool to start with, again, here working with this is, as with the money work, is the, is the understanding and awareness. It's like knowing what's going on, understanding what's going on. And that's why I love the ladder so much, the Abdena's stress ladder, because it's a visual, very clear, simple tool that I can use to just check in with myself and go, where am I right now on this? And when I feel myself spiraling into, into the upper end of, of, of run, of escape, towards this dissociation and numbness and stuff I can kind of check that's happening I can understand that that's happening and it's that awareness that starts to bring back some of the pieces of the murk around itself from the green zone that are that can be helpful so yeah I might stop here for a moment and just see what's come up for you and what you want to ask me because there's so many different directions to go from here yeah well one I just I want to reflect back that built into your response, which has really been heart opening and heartwarming for me was there's an understanding that all of these, the different uh, rings of a ladder, if you will, in our nervous system are all there for really good reason. And it can help to remember that there's a way that when I started to immerse myself into the personal development world, that there was a desire for me to just be open and curious and not reactive and not triggered. And it really helps to understand that there are really powerful, sometimes life saving reasons that we are shutting down or re- quote unquote overreacting to that email. Our, our body is just responding to what it's perceiving as a threat. And there are, as you beautifully articulated, there are varying degrees of perceived threat and arousal that uh, it depends on the person it de- you know I'm, I'm a pretty sensitive person to my stimuli and I, I used to make that mean something really negative about me that I was fundamentally flawed that I have such a strong nervous system response to let's say lighting or you and I share a sensitivity to sound and I react pretty strongly to my stimuli and my understanding of the nervous system, especially as you just explained it just now has helped me. It's a, there's more self-awareness B there's more just self-compassion again and love. That's Oh, you're, you know, that this is just a function of the body. That's completely normal. Mm -hmm. And, and it does open. It's, it's kind of a similar, the way you tied it together to 
money work is also it in me having more love for myself, I can then face outwardly to the world and be more understanding when someone else is shutting down or numbing or react, yeah. you know, overreacting. I'll put that in air quotes again. There's all sorts of judgments that we make about is that a reasonable or unreasonable response that if we immerse ourselves in the understanding of a nervous system, we know that everyone is doing the best they can given their current capacity to react and respond to what the world is, you know, how they're interacting with the world, basically. That word capacity is so important because, because as you are saying, there's something incredibly compassionate and normalizing about recognizing that this is just how our bodies respond to stress slash threats. And depending on how we're wired, and this is to do with so many different things, it can be from our DNA, what we've inherited through the generations. It can be our very, very early life experience, which has a very fundamental imprint on how the nervous system is wired for later our upbringing our environments you know do we grow up in a in that this is what this whole mind body connection comes in as well because pollution pollutants whether we live in a sort of peaceful calm wholesome green space or whether we live in a cramped little apartment in a very noisy corner of a city with i don't know a bus stop next to it i, I don't know it's like all of these different things have such huge impacts on our capacity to be with the ups and downs of stresses and they really frame or sort of impact our what daniel siegel would call the window of tolerance that we yeah. have stress so the window of tolerance is the the window of of sort of nervous system arousal within which we can naturally sort of go up and down in stress levels and and restore our energies because we're not made to be constantly chilling out and sleeping and digesting and resting and connecting we're we're very well designed and made for having ups and downs in our stress levels. But the important thing is having the downs as well and then recuperating and, and sort of recovering so that we can go up again on the stress levels. When the body becomes unable to restore itself, it gets stuck outside of its window of tolerance. And that window of tolerance can be smaller or wider for multiple reasons. And, and those reasons can be, yeah, as I said before, they can do can be to do with early life experiences as well as our DNA, as well as our environment, as well as so many different things. You know, pandemic will have had an impact on people's window of tolerance. And then our crisis response, like how do we respond to a situation like the pandemic? How do we respond when resources start running out? You know, do we start elbowing the people in the supermarket so we get toilet paper or do we find a way of distributing it in the neighborhood? for example, you know, that's, that's the, that's this fundamental piece about the story of separateness and the story of interbeing and the way in which the money work, I think, influences our capacity to stay in a connected place. So that's, that's how these things for me link together. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll offer the same thing I did around money work. Is there anything else that it's such a vast, rich topic that you could, you know, like, Deb Dana and Stephen Porges have done that you can devote your entire career to researching the nervous system. And I've, I've tasked you with maybe a 20 minute crash course on your understanding of the nervous system. But is there anything else before we move to the back end of maybe just a couple more more rapid fire nature type of questions that you want to address about the nervous system or anything at all that we've spoken about today? I think one one other piece that has been really 
helpful for me in my understanding of the nervous system and is currently, I think, hopefully being researched a bit more than it has been in the past is the the difference in nervous system kind of makeup or physiology between different genders, social groups, minorities, and so on. My understanding is that a lot of this kind of, a lot of the data that the polyvagal theory and other, you know, nervous system related research builds on is, was done on white males, male bodies. And I've even heard that, you know, in, in, for example, in a lot of like clinical studies on like new drugs and stuff that are not even related to the nervous system, but there seems to be a tendency to just go with often with male physiology because it's less complicated because it doesn't have a, a hormone cycle in the same way as, as female bodies do and so on. And that adds all sorts of complications. So let's just study the more simple one and then create massive theories based on that, that will be applied to everybody. And so while I really love and work a lot with the this, this three-layered polyvagal theory model of the nervous system, I have recently been hearing more and more about and getting really curious about other additions to that, which would explain certain behaviors under stress and danger that especially women, especially minorities will display. So there's that, there's that fawning response to danger which is making it okay for the aggressor, you know, making things fine, keeping the peace, flattering them. Like there's this kind of, instead of running or fighting or freezing, actually going towards and engaging with the source of the threat to make it okay. And that is something when I first read about this, that, you know, I, I was almost instantly in touch with my own like dissociation and, and like all sorts of layers of stuff. That is a huge aspect, I think, of so many nervous systems. Like if you're a person who, you know, fears being intercepted and maybe even shot by the police in broad daylight because of the color of your skin. Um, if you live with somebody who you fear might suddenly, you know, commit an act of violence against you at any moment, then being incredibly non-threatening is going to be very, very important. And so I think that is also a, a hugely important danger response. And I... I'm sort of at this kind of fork right now, I think in my path in working with the nervous system where the model I use still excludes that, but I always add this piece in because it feels really important, but I'm looking to create or maybe find one that integrates that as well. And I'm sure it's not the end of it. I'm sure there's going to be more because there's, yeah, there's just bound to be more as, as neuroscience gets socially diversified. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of, I don't know if you're familiar with Resma Menikem's work. Yes. Yeah, yeah, very much. He was on my mind when I was talking about the sort of the origins of our of our window of tolerance. And I was thinking how, you know, he's, he claimed, he says that the, the, the kind of the trauma response that we can have can be influenced by experiences from 14 generations ago. Mm because of epigenetics and how experience can influence our our genetic makeup and that gets passed down the generations. So that will include slavery, for example, and all sorts of stuff, you know? So yeah, that's, I think there is a, there is a, an important frontier here in, in, in nervous system research, but also in, in, in the social questions in the questions around how do we deal with, with racism? How do we deal with, with patriarchy and, what I love about Resma Menachem's work is that he approaches it so beautifully 
compassionately in pointing out how this stuff lives. This stuff lives in all of our bodies. No one's excluded from this and, or no one's exempted. <laughs> excluded sounds negative. No one's exempt from this impact. And we all have this stuff in our bodies. And so the, the healing work needs to happen through our bodies. Yeah. yeah. And it almost, it comes full circle to where we started in a way that people who like myself, who not that long ago would have made, would have claimed I'm one of the good guys or something like that, that even someone who's that well-intended, who is outwardly doing their best to not be racist and not be fill in the blank of a tendency that we want to hide from, it is unfortunately just the water that we are swimming in, in the West. We are all living on we're all living on land that was not originally ours. There's slavery, colonialization. There's there's so many oppressive systems that we didn't choose, but we're part of them. And and Medicam does a really wonderful job of really kind of looking at that from a generational level. And I didn't know 14 generations was the number. That's it's mind-boggling to think that we are influenced by that many generations. And you can imagine that any num any of the unprocessed stuff that might get passed down, the compounding effect that that has on us that we consciously have no idea of, but it, it lives within us. And so there's a, a big responsibility on everyone to take a look at, you know, how A, the healing work and B, how do I really want to show up? And even if I hate this aspect of myself, what what's showing up for me? And my grandmother's hands has lots of uncomfortable practices, such as if you imagine yourself walking into a predominantly black neighborhood, let's just say, and there are a hundred people of color outside, what happens in your body as you imagine that? And there is very likely if you are a white person like myself and like you, that there's a perceived threat because we have internalized that being in a black neighborhood is really dangerous. And that's not a character defect on our end. It has just been part of the cultural narrative and historical narrative that we were all born into. And yeah, it, it's it's something that we won't be able to fully address in, in today's conversation, but something that I think is really important to name that everyone, is, no, no one is exempt, as you said, from doing this work. It's, it is important for all of us. Yes. And and again, if we think of the nervous system less as a sort of self-enclosed box and more as a sort of part of a, an ecosystem and of a network of mycelia, we, well, that, that has a whole lot of implications. One of them being that all of this stuff that goes inside our, goes on inside our bodies that we try so hard to maybe not even notice ourselves or, you know, not let others notice, it's there and it's being communicated and so the body doesn't lie and and we we need to confront the truth that it's telling us mm -hmm. and, yeah and that can be really uncomfortable and i think again this is something that peter's money work approach is is one is one way to compassionately but honestly and unflinchingly look at all of these different pieces in us well i just have a couple more questions for you agnes they're more rapid fire nature. They don't have to be quick responses. Okay. All right. 
What is an ordinary everyday moment that brings you great joy? Ordinary everyday moment that brings me great joy. So I've got two in my mind. <laughs> I'm here for um, both. Okay. One is that every morning when we wake up, my my daughter creeps into bed with us and sort of snuggles up with us. And she loves doing this thing that she calls the morning thing. And the morning thing for her is kind of being reborn. Like she snuggles up under the duvet and then she comes out <laughs> and she's born. And she's usually born as a kitten. Um, <laughs> sometimes it's a flying squirrel, but it's in, in recent times it's been a kitten. And it's just this everyday thing of joy of like her going, I'm here. And I'm like, yay, welcome to the world. <laughs> and it's, it's unfadingly every day I'm with her, she does it. And um, yeah, so that came up for me Im immediately. And another is, and it's it's not every, every day, but most days I, I get to peek or be at or be inside of the sea. And I, yeah, there's a, there's a huge that's a huge source of of well-being and of resourcing and of comfort and of invigoration and actually everything I could possibly need for me in my life and I didn't grow up by the sea but I, I've lived here in Brighton for about um well coming on for 15 years this year actually wow. I moved here 15 years ago and yeah there's this poem by Mary Oliver that goes something like you know Something like she's she's unhappy and she goes down to the sea and she says, Oh, what what should I do? And the sea in its lovely voice says, Excuse me, I have work to do. Mm. And it's just this kind of this constant presence and stability of the tides coming in and out and the waves coming in and out, no matter what happens. And yeah, that gives me great joy. Me too. And comfort. Mm. Yeah. Trees and any number of different images of nature bring me that sense of always changing, never in a rush, but always slowly evolving methodically, not not worrying about not trying to be something that it's not, just is that the waves just come in, they go out. I, I usually think of rivers as well as just naturally flowing and not in a hurry. And when I, one of my tendencies is definitely to be in a hurry. And it's, those are images that I find really helpful for grounding as well, the way a tree is just deeply rooted and connected and interconnected. I love that you were able to bring that in in multiple ways because we are all connected in ways that even if we're completely unconscious of it and have done zero inner work, we're, we're always perceiving our level of safety with other people and responding to each other in that way. And yeah. uh, nature can be a really powerful way to connect back with self and with the collective. Yeah. And what well, you said about yeah. not trying to be anything we're not like nature yeah. doesn't nature never tries to be anything it isn't. And I think there is such wisdom and such. Yeah, there's something there's a really simple piece in here, but a really kind of essential piece in here that we can internalize like mm -hmm. a flower or a a blade of grass doesn't go. What's my purpose? What's the <laughs> what's what's the justification for my existence how can i justify my existence and i think we can we can we can draw on that we can, we need to draw on that on this like i'm here i'm here and i am and yeah beautiful are there any quotes that you come back to often or and or books that you would recommend 
Yes, there are. Given what we've talked about, one book that has been huge for me is a very, very old book that is as old as I am. <laughs> I was born in 85 and this was published in 85. It's by here on my desk. It's Ram Das and Paul Gorman. It's called How Can I Help? Stories and Reflections on Service. And it's it's a poetic story kind of driven way of unpacking some of the stuff we've talked about today around identity, being a savior, being a helper, being in service. And yeah, it's it's something it's it's one of the books that has the most like bits of sticky notes in it and you know, under underlined bits and stuff. And another is Francis Weller's The Wild Edge of Sorrow. Don't know if you've come across him, but there's something about the I think he calls it the sacred the sacred exchange between grief and joy. Mm. And that is what a lot of my work I think is about is we're so as a society, as a culture, and, and and when I say we, I'm talking again about the industrialized world. We're so grief avoidant, we're so loss avoidant, we're so death avoidant that we end up not living, not experiencing joy, not feeling alive, because the aliveness and the joy and and all of that juiciness are intertwined and completely intertwined with with the the loss and the grief and and with death and dying and yeah so Francis Weller's book is full of full of wisdom full of entry points into grief from different angles he calls it the five gates of grief it's full of beautiful poetry and yeah it was a sort of is it it's one of those books where when I hold it in my hands I can feel something settle in my body yeah yeah the book has been recommended to me multiple times now, so it is definitely on my radar. And before I ask my very final question, where would you invite folks who are tuned in right now to connect with you and your work? So this, the best way to connect with me and my work at the moment is probably just my website, which is called thegoodsjungle.org. You can, you can find some stuff I've written on there. You can email me through that website. You can also write to hello at thegoodjungle.org. Yeah. I'm no, I'm, I have a Twitter account, but it's not an, a Facebook account, but I've been a lot less present on social media lately. Yeah. Um, so those are a bit sort of outdated, but yeah, probably email and the website. Mm. Yeah. Well, the final question that I ask every interview, Agnes, and I'm going to give you two choices here because in, in some way you addressed the, the blade of grass or the, the element of nature that fill in the blank that you want to name doesn't really question what its purpose is. And the podcast is called Mike's Search for Meaning. And I typically ask at the end, what does it mean to you to live a meaningful life? And so that's option number one. Mm -hmm. And option number two would be just any parting thoughts that you have given today's conversation or wish for the audience or anything that you feel called to share as we close here. Okay. Mm. What does it mean to live a meaningful life? I just need to think on that for a moment. Mm -hmm. Take your time. Mm. Okay. <laughs> I think my my sense of what it means to live a meaningful life has been changing over the years. And the answer I would give right now, maybe it will be a different answer in 10 years time, but right now, 
for me, living a meaningful life means to kind of to really connect with the whole, the whole me, connect with the whole me and connect with the whole of, of the cosmos or the world I'm part of. And that, that sounds very kind of vague and huge, but I think the first part of my life and of my adult life was very dominated by this kind of ascending motion of like the hero's journey you know like you go out there into the world and you assert yourself and you 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 get you must have success and and you must become independent and it was very left-brained and very academic and very yeah very sort of ascent the motion was an ascending motion and it was also a kind of a moving away from a distancing myself from my more feminine maybe earthy parts of the downward the downward movements like the sinking into the earth and I think that's that's part of the task we're facing right now in in making making meaning of this time is this is acknowledging the successes we've had with with how far we come have come and can come with our intellect and our you know never-ending capacity for invention and overcoming and and going up to space but I think a meaningful life is also in kind of coming back down mm-hmm. from space into, you know, onto the earth and into maybe what happened in, in for me in lockdown was, you know, I was constantly buzzing around the world and going here and here and here. And then suddenly I'm in this like one square kilometer perimeter all the time. And I'm starting to really connect with what goes on in the spring, what goes on like yeah. as flowers come through. And when I was younger, that wouldn't have felt meaningful because meaning meant like to be out there and making great things happen. But actually seeing how, you know, a square inch of soil transformed in over a matter of days as spring started in in the Alps in the spring of 2020 and being really present to that felt incredibly meaningful. And um, so there's there's something for me in that descending and coming back down and connecting with with that part of us. Yeah. It's a beautiful way to end the interview and the conversation, Agnes. And I want to acknowledge a, a lot of elements and appreciate a lot of elements about you and the work that you're doing. One of the many things I appreciate about the way that you show up is there's an integration of researcher and clinician among many other things. And there's a level of care about making this work accessible, both in your languaging, uh, how you're articulating it, but also how can we make this so that it's not just a bunch of really privileged people who can afford to do this work benefiting from it? What's what's for the greater, greatest collective good here? And in your answer for what dictates a meaningful life, there was a there was a blend of the me and the we is the way that I was hearing it, right? Like, how can I be the best and most whole me? And how can we be the most whole collectively altogether? And in a lot of ways, that's what that's one of the missions of what I'm doing with this podcast and what I'm doing with my work is that I want to be the best versions of myself and also support everyone, the whole world in what's collectively possible for us. And You address it from so many different angles. We talked about race, climate change. There's just like so many things that are happening in the world. And there is a humility that you seem to bring to it as well that I I really admire. So thank you for taking the time to have this pretty long and really thoughtful, rich exploration of what you're up to in the world with me.
I really appreciate it. Thank you, Michael. It's been it's re it's really precious to have the opportunity to just be listened to in this way and and to have stuff reflected back to me and mirrored back and also have questions asked in a way that yeah really connects up with so many of the lines of inquiry that I've been living with and um, I feel like I've got a a load of tabs open in my mind. <laughs> I've been opening a lot of tabs, you know, when you've got a browser and it's like really oh, busy. Yeah. So I would, that what that's a way of saying that I would, I would love to continue exchanging with you in some way, but yeah, it's been a really lovely couple of hours. Yeah. Same Thank here, so same much. here. And I'm, I'm here for all of the connection on all the different tabs that are open and we'll, we'll continue this conversation in the future for sure. And to everyone who's listening and tuned in, I hope that you have a joyous and wonderful rest of your day or evening. Take good care and lots of love. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.